As Jock used to say, going out with Carl was like going out with Caligula. Carl didn't really understand that until Jock explained it to him and then Carl was very happy. He was a very good all-round crook, much admired by people in his line of work. He was extremely dead. It was a very proficient hit. I'm Andrew Rule. This is the Life and Crimes podcast. The Melbourne Underworld War started in the spring of 1999 when Carl Williams was shot in the Guts by Jason Moran. That is a well-known story. What is not so well-known is that about two weeks before, on a Sunday night, a good friend of Carl Williams, a, a childhood friend of Carl Williams, was sitting in a restaurant in St Kilda, a restaurant called Chicolina's, and it was about 9.45, and he's sitting there alone having had some dinner when his mobile phone goes. On the phone is Carl, his old mate Carl, the boy he grew up with in suburban Broadmeadows, the boy he used to play street cricket with, the boy from whom he bought his first hot video recorder, because Carl started out as a small-time burglar. And our little mate sitting in the restaurant is in fact a very prominent sportsman. He had left Broadmeadows and become a professional sportsman who had performed in his particular trade, not only around Australia, but internationally. And on this occasion, he was back in Melbourne, and he was keen to see his old mate. And that sets the scene for what happened this night. His phone goes, and Carl's on the line, and Carl says, I'm going to come and pick you up, and we're going out. And our bloke, we'll call him Jock, not his real name. Jock says, yeah, see you then, Carl. So he hangs up. And he walks out the back of the restaurant after he pays his bill, into the car park and he waits there and sure enough in about 10 or 15 minutes a dark coloured anonymous sedan pulls in to the car park and he realised that this sedan was the sort of anonymous car that Carl drove when he was doing business as they say in the trade he wasn't driving a flashy car he's driving like an old falcon or something and this car was sitting quite low on its springs it was fairly well loaded and one reason for that is that Carl's driving and Carl was no lightweight. And in the seat next to him on the passenger side is the late Dino Dibra, who was a gunman and kickboxer of some renown and a thug and a lout and a criminal and a drug dealer from the western suburbs. And in the back seat is a little tough-looking man, little hard-looking man, who's about the size of a jockey. And our friend Jock shakes hands with him and finds out that his name is Andrew Veneman, otherwise known as Benji. So who we have in this car, uh, listeners, uh, Carl Williams, the rising drug dealer of Melbourne at that stage that no one really knew about, and two of the people who would become very feared gunmen in Melbourne over the next few years. Jock thought naturally that they'd be heading off to a nightclub down in South uh, Yarra. He thought they'd be going to Dome nightclub where they'd get full of grog and uh, drugs and then go and pick up some strippers and party all night because he'd done this before. As Jock used to say, going out with Carl was like going out with Caligula. Carl didn't really understand that until Jock explained it to him and then Carl was very happy. But on this night, they don't go to Dome nightclub. The car turns left and then it turns right down into the Nepean Highway and it heads down the highway through the Bayside suburbs so it goes past Brighton and it goes past all those Bayside suburbs all the way down and Jock is wondering where they're going and he's starting to worry a little bit because it doesn't look anywhere interesting 
and it seems to be a long way. And by the time they get to Morty Alec, he says, Carl, where are we heading? And Carl says something non-committal like, oh, we're just going for a drive. We're going to see a fella. Or we're going to see about a fella. And Jock knows when to shut up, so he shut up. And they keep going, and they keep going. They go to Frankston. They go through Frankston. They keep bypassing all the towns down the way. And in the end, it's getting quite late by this. It's probably 10.30 on a Sunday night in, I think, late September or early October. And he realises that Carl is slowed down and he's put his lights on high beam and he's looking for a turn-off. He's actually looking for Hughes Road. And eventually they get to Hughes Road. Carl sees the sign, turns left into Hughes Road and he drives up Hughes Road over the sand dunes and into a large car park. And this car park is known as the Cunha Beach car park for the very good reason that it is directly above Cunha Beach, which is one of the wildest, roughest little beaches on the ocean side of the Mornington Peninsula. This is over on the rough side near where Harold Holt was drowned. And it's very rough water and no one's going to be there on a Sunday night at this time of year. The car park's empty and there's just a set of steps and a path leading down from the car park into acres and acres of tea tree and other scrub. There's a lot of dense tea tree there. And they pull up, and of course, Jock is very puzzled about what they're doing there. Why are we here? What's going on? And Carl turns around, looks at him and says, Mate, I've finished my drink. Can you hop out and go to the boot and um, get me another can of drink? I'm not sure if it's beer or soft drink, but anyway, it was a can of drink. He said, there's an esky there. You'll, you'll see it. So he pops the boot, and our mate Jock, being a good mate, he hops out and he walks around to the boot, lifts the boot, and he looks inside it, and it's all lined in black plastic. The boot is lined in black plastic. And it's not an esky as such there. There's two white tubs, those big white tubs that look a bit like eskies. But they're the white tubs that are commonly used at the fish market and at abattoirs where they carry fish or meat in these tubs. And these white tubs have lids. And he lifts up the lid of one of them and he looks inside and he thinks, oh, what's this? There's no cans of drink there. And he lifts the lid off a bit further and he thinks there's all meat in here. They must be going to have some sort of midnight barbecue. The grog must be in the other esky. And as he's looking at the esky full of meat, he realises the truth. He sees a hand sticking out, a human hand. And that's when he realised what was really in the tubs. It was a body that had been cut up to dispose of. The three fellows in the car thought this was a wonderful joke. They'd pulled this joke on their unsuspecting mate. He swore at them and was fairly shaken. He didn't think it was really good. And he swore at Carl and Carl just laughed and then hopped out of the car himself and beckoned him away because Carl was very cagey and careful about speaking in the car in case there were listening devices. And he had a bit of a chat to our mate Jock. Meanwhile, the other two, Debra and Veneman, hop out of the car go to the boot, lift one tub out each and take a short-handled shovel that was in the boot and a torch and they wander off down the path, down the steps, into the tea tree and they're gone for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. And they return later with nothing but the torch. So clearly they've buried the tubs and they've buried the shovel with it and they've just come back with the torch. And then they hop in the car and return to Melbourne. Now, Jock doesn't really know what to make of this except... Clearly, they've disposed of a body. Jock is not the sort of person to talk about disposing of bodies because these are his friends, and he knows they're good friends but dangerous friends, so he's not going to talk about it. He's not that sort of person. And he doesn't really talk much about this for many years until, in fact, 
one day, long after Carl Williams and Dino Dibra and Andrew Veneman were all shot dead, long after that, in 2014, the police issued a press release saying that a man called Milo Radapchevic had not been seen in Melbourne since 1999. This man had vanished. He was a violent criminal. He'd done jail time for violent crimes. He'd probably been a drug dealer. He hanged around with other bad guys. And a good friend of his, a bloke called Jim Bellius, had been shot dead in an underground garage in St Kilda Road back in 1999 and was one of the many unsolved murders from the underworld war period. And it turned out that this Jim Bellius, who was shot dead in an execution-style murder in St Kilda Road, having met someone there, had this very good friend, Milorad Dapchevic. And the police had called in in 1999, Milorad Dapchevic, and talked to him, as you would, at St Kilda Road, and asked him all about his mate who'd been shot dead. I don't know what Milorad told them, but possibly not much. Anyway, the last time he's seen, alive anyway, in Australia, is when he's exiting... St Kilda Road Police Station. And after that moment in 1999, no one knows what happened to him. However, it is interesting to know about the life and death of his very good friend, Jim Bellius. Jim Bellius was a fringe player, really. He ducked and dived between the underworld and semi-legitimate business. And he met a lot of shady people at the Fenwick Inn pub in Carlton, and he would move anything from hot cars to fake gems. He was one of those sort of guys. He had a reputation for loan scams and dodgy property developments. And undoubtedly, he earned a lot of enemies along the way. And what we don't know is which of those enemies killed him or had him killed. And what we don't know is whether the same enemies got rid of Millerad Dupchevic. But we can run through Jim Bellius's last movements back in September of 1999, so this is the week or so before Jock's trip down to Cunha Beach. What happened was this, Jim Bellius met a colourful character called Bluey Bob Mather, and we can say his name because he's now dead too, he died in his sleep. So he met Bluey Bob Mather, who was a very interesting fellow, I met him, he was a fascinating, charming, charismatic crook. He managed to make a living for 30 or 40 years without annoying the tax man. And Bluey Bob had met uh, Bellius. He wouldn't officially say why. He would never make a police statement. It was against his religion. But the police, being very careful people, had taped him in an unofficial conversation in which he admitted that he had lent Bellius a fake diamond. Bellius had borrowed this fake diamond in order to pull some scam and he was returning it, apparently, to Bluey Bob Mather. On the afternoon of September 9, 1999, Bellius and his driver, Greg Smith, had a drink at a Collingwood pub at about five o'clock and then they went driving around on business. Bellius mentioned to Greg that he had to see someone in St Kilda Road at seven o'clock. The last time Greg Smith saw his employer, Jim Bellius, was at the pub in Collingwood when Bellius left to drive himself into the city to meet Bluey Bob Mather at Rockman's Regency Hotel in the city. Now, Bluey Bob Mather was a colourful character who 
had not bothered the tax man in about 40 years. He knew lots and lots about how to uh, write fake checks and how to forge things and how to sell fake diamonds and how to create all sorts of scams. He was a very good all-round crook, much admired by people in his line of work. And on this occasion, at about quarter to six on this evening, they met outside Rockman's Regency where they had a little bit of business to do. And I think Bellius handed back to Bluey Bob Mather a fake diamond that Bellius had borrowed from him in order to pull some scam. And then they said their goodbyes. This is according to Bluey Bob, who wouldn't actually make a statement to the police about this, but he, he told them off the record that he said goodbye to him and um, off tootled Bellius down to St Kilda Road where he had an appointment to meet someone else. Now, the last time Bellius was seen alive, he was parked down in St Kilda Road in his own car outside 594 St Kilda Road, where a security guard noticed him in his car talking on his mobile phone. About 10 minutes after that, the security guard heard a very loud bang. Apparently, Bellius got out of his car and walked down into an underground car park at that address and had met somebody who'd shot him in the head because he was extremely dead. It was a very proficient hit and it had all the hallmarks of being a setup that he'd met someone who was going to kill him. Why that happened, no one knows, but he had earned a lot of enemies and some of them were pretty serious people. It was five days after that shooting that the police brought in Milorad Dabchevic and interviewed him and, of course, Milorad Dabchevic then disappears. Jim Bellius probably wasn't mourned by that many people. He'd made a lot of enemies. I guess his own family were sad about his passing. But one person who wasn't mourning him was a kickboxing identity whose name we will not use. We'll call him Peter, which is not his real name. But Peter was a very fine kickboxer in his day. But he'd probably got a bit naughty and started to run with the wrong people. And in fact, he might have become a very proficient arm robber. And he might have become a proficient gunman. And he might have become a very cold-blooded person in every respect. Because it turns out that Peter, luckily for Peter, had insured Jim Bellius's life for $150,000. Now, perhaps this was because Bellius owed him money. I don't know. But apparently he'd got a life insurance policy in his own favour. And that when Jim Bellius turned up dead with a bullet in him in St Kilda Road, Peter was able to claim the 150000 Now, he realised, because he's no fool, that this would make him some sort of suspect. So he came in and saw the police, possibly with his lawyer, and cleared the air and was able to show them that he had a very good alibi. He was probably playing cards with 10 other people at the time when the shooting happened, and it clearly wasn't him. So he collected his hundred and fifty grand and uh, went home. Now, when our friend Jock hears about all this in 2014, he tells me this story and he says, you know what, I never really wondered who that guy was in the boot, but I remember now that Carl said it was some guy with a Croatian name. And it was a name that started with D and it ended in that itch sound that Croatian names tend to end in. And he assumed rightly or wrongly, that the body in the boot that he'd seen buried was in fact this Millerard Dapchevic. Now, there's no saying whether he's right or wrong. We don't know. All we know is the real Millerard Dapchevic has not been seen since that era. But what is true 
is this, that somebody was buried that night. We just can't be sure who. The police are interesting about this issue. They have a belief that Milorad Daptovic might have fled Australia in fear of his life and that he might have got a false passport because he certainly didn't leave on his own passport and that he may well be back in Montenegro where he was born and bred, uh, which is, of course, in the Balkans near Croatia. Whether they've got any proof of that, I don't know, but I don't believe they have. It's just a belief that the police have formed from rumours in the underworld, I think. It's hard to know the truth of them. Is he the body in the boot? Or is he a man who managed to get away from Australia with a false passport? We don't know. One day we might find out. This story is by way of being a preamble to the Underworld War because in that same month of October 1999, the same month that uh, the body in the boot goes down and is buried at the beach at Rye, Carl Williams turns 30 and on his 30th birthday he meets Jason Moran and his brother Mark Moran in a park in the western suburbs and that was the confrontation which led, of course, to Carl being shot in the stomach with a twenty-two pistol by Jason Moran. And had Jason shot Carl dead on that occasion, which it wouldn't be good because it would be murder, it would have really been just one dead drug dealer that was a, a death quickly got over by everybody except his loved ones and probably would have prevented the entire underworld war because Carl took it deeply to heart that he'd been shot in the stomach. And he got very, very vengeful about this and hired gunmen and hitmen and all sorts of nasty people to then start an extermination program against the Moran family and their friends and their supporters and their associates and their hirelings. So in the end, it was that meeting in late October 1999 that led directly to what we call the Underworld War. And that's the story of the body in the boot and two mysterious deaths that have never been solved and are most unlikely to be solved. Thanks for listening. You can read more in the Sunday Herald Sun or online on heraldsun.com.au. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.